all of these things that I teach teachers and work with them on are relevant for everyone. And I, I know I feel that way too with parents when yes, every kid is individual, but if we just stay curious and try to figure out what's going on with each individual child, we will be able to protect that relationship, which is the container that all the growth is gonna happen. Is your child's challenging behavior leaving you feeling exhausted, defeated, and hopeless? You are not alone. And I want you to know you are not a failure and your child is not broken. Welcome to Calm the Chaos Parenting, the podcast for parents raising strong-willed, highly sensitive, or neurodivergent children. I'm Dana Abraham, parenting expert, and I have helped hundreds of thousands of families just like yours. Each week, I'll share simple science-backed solutions to help you feel more grounded, in tune, and deeply connected to your child, no matter what challenge you face. Start your journey from surviving to thriving as a family at CalmTheChaosPodcast.com. Welcome back to the Calm the Chaos Parenting Podcast. I am so excited because today we are going to be talking about something that I continue to get questions about inside of our community. And it's twofold. I'm getting questions about what do I do to help my child in school? They're wanting to come home on Fridays because they say they're just done before the end of the week, or they're refusing to go to school because they say school is too stressful. Or when they are going to school, they come home and they're stressed out and they don't want to do their homework. Work. And then I'm hearing from the teachers that they're not turning in their work. They're not doing their things. And despite having IEPs or no IEPs, it feels like I can never get my kids' needs met in school. And then on the other side, I hear parents talking about this need for their kids to be caught up, this need for kids to achieve and be successful in school. And schools wanting kids to be in school every day and to meet the, the norms of their peers. And at the end of the day, what's missing is no one's talking about kids feeling safe at school. So I feel like this is such an important conversation. So I've brought on one of my good friends to talk about this because this is what she does all day, every day. Um, so welcome, Emily. I am so excited to have you today for this really important conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit and share with our listeners who you are and kind of why you're so passionate about talking about schools and children and meeting the needs of all children? I am currently a licensed psychologist, but a former school psychologist. And even before that, I always wanted to be a teacher growing up. I thought I wanted to be a high school teacher until I took Shakespeare and decided I did not want to teach high school English. So then I realized and had at the same time kind of fallen in love with psychology and realized that school psychology was a profession. So I love learning. I love figuring out why learning is hard. And then in my practicums and internships and all the training that we get as school psychologists, I started understanding just the complexities of behavior. And that behavior, of course, as we all know, is the tip of the iceberg. And there's so much underneath it in terms of mental health and developmental needs and skill weaknesses and all of the things that we as mental health professionals and special educators understand. But then as my work has evolved over the years, and I've now been working with kids and families for about 20 years, as this work has evolved, I've 
come back to talking to teachers a lot because they don't get this training. They do not get the nuts and bolts of where behavior comes from and why emotional dysregulation happens and how to co-regulate and create safety for children in school and how all of that has to happen. We know this from brain science. All of that has to happen before we can access our thinking part of our brain, our upper cortex, where all the learning takes place. So you ask why I'm passionate about this. It's because I I see over time how we're doing some of these things wrong. We're coming about it backwards. We're coming at it from a top-down model where we just want kids to learn more information and faster and get them all doing the same things and up to par and up to speed and whatever that is. And we're missing the bottom-up model, as our colleague, Dr. Mona Delahook talks about, of, but what is going on first with this child's nervous system? Are they ready to learn? If they're not, how can we get them ready to learn? And we re- when we really start talking about that, we start seeing what's missing in teacher education, what's missing in professional development, and also what's missing systemically in education in America and in other countries too, where teachers do not have the support they need to even go about slowing things down and doing things more individually. When we have for years been talking about inclusion and including diverse needs in the classroom, but then not backing that up with the support that teachers need to make it happen. Yeah. What do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to meeting the needs of diverse children and and especially our neurodivergent kids who are in in the schools and they are struggling to to meet the expectations? What are some of the misconceptions either from parents or from teachers or both that you're noticing? One of the biggest systemic misconceptions is that we're divided into this special education, regular education model. It's really an outdated model, but we are still using it. It is how our law is structured. You know, starting in 1975, we started educating all children, which was good. Of course, we all agree that this was good. But the way that we went about that was to educate teachers to teach children with specialized education plans or IEPs and 504s. And then everyone else just stayed in regular education. And those teachers didn't receive any type of specialized training or instruction. And then there was this push to include kids that did not necessarily need a separate learning setting, but were able to learn in the big group with just accommodations. Yet those, of course, are kids that sometimes are being missed because they're perceived as quote unquote regular education students, but they're not. So herein lies where it's not this or that. I always say to teachers, you already have a neurodiverse classroom. What I'm passionate about is teaching you what to do with that. And so Mm -hmm. you all, every teacher listening to this already knows they have a huge range of neurodiversities going on in their classroom. They might be identified. They might not be identified. If you're young K through pre-K through third grade teachers, your kids probably don't have any kind of identification. Um, And I'm not even talking about the kids that come in with, you know, traumatic backgrounds and live in poverty and all that stuff. Like that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) But what we're just talking about is developmental neurodiversities that are going to show up and look 
very different from a child who is typically developing in terms of their attention span and their language and their ability to control their impulses. So that leads me to the second misconception, which is that children choose to quote unquote misbehave. So is it a can't or is it a won't? This is something that is a misconception. I think the pendulum keeps swinging back and forth. So in one swing, it's the misconception of like, kids just need to do what they're told. This is the the old school traditional route. They just need to do what they're told. I set the rules. They need to do it. If they don't, they're giving me a hard time. They're quote unquote, a bad kid, all that stuff. And then we, of course, there's a lot of research behind you know, brain development, dysregulation, anxious brains, of course, are going to go into fight or flight. And there's going to be aggressive looking behavior, arguing, aggression, elopement, all of these things that are, you know, we're getting better about things that are really extreme behaviors that obviously kids look like they are out of their own body's control at those moments. But what we're not good at yet is this like nuance type of like when a child is arguing, usually Mm -hmm. that child is having an emotional reaction to something and they're usually bright and they have all these great language skills. So what does that look like? It looks like negotiation. So Mm -hmm. that child doesn't get understood often because they're being, they are being a little bit hard to manage in a classroom where you have to, you know, when someone's anyone is negotiating with you, that's hard. Let's, honor it. Teachers, I know that that's hard. But if we come at it from they're choosing to do this, they can just stop if I tell them to, that's not going to work if it is a stress response. Now let's take the pendulum swinging all the way back in the other direction. You'll hear people say, well, there's no structure anymore. There are no rules anymore. We're just giving everybody all this free range to um, just, you know, peace, love, and kindness, you know, and it's not that either. You know, we still are going to show up and have structure for our students and for our kids, but it's compassionate and it is respectful in the way that we all want to treat each other with kindness. And we can't get there until we build those relationships. And if we are in a situation where we are just telling a child to stop doing something that they can't help. We continue to invalidate them. They don't trust us in return. And we get into a negative feedback loop with Mm -hmm. trying to build that relationship with them. So when we focus first on the relationship with structure in mind, and then we think, okay, I'm going to have structure, but I'm going to also have flexibility because there will be students that you know, try to stretch the rules and stretch all the things. And, and that's the dance that all the educators do in parents. We do it as parents too. I mean, I have two boys. They are completely different. I've had to parent them in completely different ways because one pushes the boundaries and one is a rule follower. So it's like that, but you got 25 of them in a class if you're an educator. So of course, this is incredibly hard. And I just want to have us staying curious and thinking about it's not either or, it's both and, and we have to think about that with every single child in mind and balancing the expectations we have for kids with through the lens of that child's skills, all with the purpose of moving that child forward in whatever way that looks like for them. 
What do you say about, you know, a lot of times I'll hear from both parents or teachers, and I'm speaking of like, even in my own instance, when I'm advocating for my kids' needs, I'll hear parents might say, yeah, I understand this. And I just want the teachers to understand what are some ways that parents can come about this, can create that relationship with the teachers so that teachers can learn this even if they haven't had this training or they think you're making excuses for your kid. So we have to remember that teachers, a regular education teacher probably has not had training in typical and versus neurodivergent child development. Like they're just thinking about their grade level or their subject matter that they're teaching and what's expected at that time. So If we go in with the assumption that you are the expert on your child in the home and your teacher is your child's teacher is the expert of the curriculum, the setting, children that age in the school, we've got to merge those two ideas together. So where I see this go wrong when a lot of tensions, of course, we are mama bears all the time and there's a lot of tension. And then teachers can feel overworked and overstressed and feel defensive if a parent comes in and tries to tell them how to do their job, right? I mean, let's just be honest about like, it can get a little territorial sometimes. So I always say you're the expert of your child at home. And then once your teacher gets to know your child, they are the expert about what your child looks like in the classroom. And that's a beautiful thing later in the school year, because sometimes our kids will do stuff at school that they don't do at home. And our teacher can be like, guess what? They're totally independent with hanging up all their belongings at school. And you're like, yeah, they never do that when they come into the house. And then you're starting (laughs) to tease apart a skill weakness from needing to set a boundary on a routine of taking care of your things. So if they can do it in one place, it means we could work on expanding that and making it happen across settings. So what we want to think about when we think about the collaboration of home and school is always sharing what's working. We are indoctrinated with this like problem-solving medical model of life of like, you go to the doctor for a problem, they figure it out and they fix it and they send you on your way. Special education is often like that too. I've got this problem and psychology can be like that too. I've got this problem, got to get my kid tested and then we figure out what to do in this. And yes, there's a place for all of those things. And there's also a lot of collaboration that can happen way before the evaluation even takes place or even as it's taking place. You don't have to wait for a diagnosis. You don't have to wait for an IEP. Those things are all helpful and official documents. But you can, you and that teacher can problem solve this stuff tomorrow if you need to. And so we want to present with what is working instead of going in with like, this is the problem. This is the problem. We have to kind of unlearn that medical model. I always like to say to teachers, um, I have, you know, if we start the school year, of course, with, you know, I think this is going to be hard, but let me know if it's not. So for instance, like at the beginning of the year, I think we all, if we, any of us listening have children with different, different needs than the grade that they're going into or asynchronous development or needs, it's helpful to tell your teacher at the beginning, like, this is the stuff that they're really good at. This is the stuff they need support on. And if you see my kid do this, it's a big deal. Like whether that's going to the bathroom by themselves or asking for help or remembering their water bottle, like 
whatever, or being able to recover after an upset without hitting someone, like whatever it is, teachers have in kind of a general feel of like what a certain age or grade should be able to do. But always share what would be a big deal for your kid to be able to do. Mm -hmm. And then as you go through the year, communicating back and forth with those celebrations can be huge because when a teacher gets it and they see, they know that your child has never been to the bathroom independently, let's say, and they notice that and they send you a text about it because they're excited and you're excited. That is some instant yummy communication where you're feeling like, oh, my, she gets it. Like we're a team. We're working together for my kid. We're celebrating together. Um, those moments don't happen unless we focus on them because we all we always get so stuck in this. Here's the problem. No news is good news. Here's the problem. And that's, of course, a bigger systemic issue with how tired we all are, how busy we all are. But always try to lead with what's working. And if you are trying to figure, you and the teacher are both trying to figure out something that's working, the minute one of you figures it out, like sharing that with each other and being like, hey, this works at home. See if, see if this can work in the classroom and vice versa. Um, you're not telling the teacher what to do in the classroom, but you're saying this works at home. Maybe it could work at school. Just sharing that idea with you. Dana here, and guess what? My book, Calm the Chaos, has officially launched. So if you enjoy the podcast and find the stuff we're sharing valuable, I'm 100% sure you're going to love the book. You can get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com. And if you use this link, you'll also get some special bonuses. So once again, the link is calmthechaosbook.com. Thanks. I hope you're enjoying the show. What would you say to either a teacher or a parent um, and one, what would you say? And then do you have any tips um, for how to address this? But I'm thinking of those kids that you talked about earlier that their nervous system does not feel safe. They are dysregulated. They haven't found their, you know, their emotional regulation isn't where it needs to be at school. And so they're not able to access the learning. They're not able to access all the expectations that are being put on them. And so one, Sometimes that comes home and then they have to do extra work at home because they didn't do it at school or their grades are suffering or they're being, you know, um, told they have to do it at school and the focus is on the academics. What would you, one, say to either a teacher or a parent that that's kind of what's happening? And then what are some suggestions for the first steps to take if this is where we're at? So usually the children who are not fully able to emotionally regulate yet are our lower elementary ages. So they are kind of that K through three age range where they're turning into big kids, but they may have the emotional regulation skills more of kind of a preschooler. Think about your child and think about how their nervous system feels to you. And I just remember with my own son at one point, I was like, I think we're sending a three-year-old to kindergarten, even though he was six, like his nervous system was still like with how he handled setbacks at the time and how he fell apart about things. So feel like, think about it's It's not, we can't really, you know, there's no blood test or brain scan for how mature your nervous system is, but think about your kid and think about how that feels just to help communicate the mismatch at those early elementary ages of I think, my, and this is what we talk about when we say kids haven't 
learned how to be a student yet. I'm like, okay, so what does that actually mean? What that means is I haven't learned how to follow a routine and sit in a chair and attend all at the same time. That's what that means. Don't you feel this also happens like as older in the older grades? Like I see it with, I mean, I saw it with my own kids. I'm seeing it with my 16 year old right now where there's just this mismatch of the expectations being put on them versus where they feel ready to show up and be able to access the information, not just young, young kids. Yes, absolutely. And I think prior to COVID, we sometimes saw that just with the young kids. We're seeing it more across ages after COVID because of just all the diverse things that happened to kids over COVID. But the other pressure that I see is coming from the other end of the age spectrum of what are you doing after high school and everyone Mm -hmm. needing to do all the things and take all the classes and the trickle down of that pressure. And imagine if you are, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth grader and that trickling down pressure into middle school. And I think middle school is that age range where we are asking kids to do the most executive functioning with the least amount of brain development. (laughs) We don't ask our elementary kids to do that much executive functioning because they're in elementary school. And our high schoolers can still struggle with it, but their brains are a little bit more developed or they've, they've figured out by high school kind of what works for them. So what I would say kind of in general across age ranges is first we got to notice the mismatch. And young kids, it can be absolutely just about feeling safe at school and emotionally regulating to be able to attend. But as we get older, that attention or really it's engagement is expanded into executive functioning. Am I paying attention? Am I organizing myself? Do I know what I need? Can I get started on my own? And usually in middle school for neurodivergent kids, their executive functioning is not independent yet. But for some reason, we think it is or schools think it is. And so it seems to be the hardest. That's the hardest sell I'm finding with with educators and with parents. I will have to kind of reframe everybody's thought process on this because everybody tends to get a little scared about like, well, what if, if they don't learn how to do it now, what's going to happen in high school? I'm like, well, their brain might actually not be able to do it now, but they will be able to do it in high school. But if we stress them out so much with all of this demand of all these things, we could burn them out on school. And so to answer your question about when work does come home, we need to take a step back and ask, what is our goal? Because what's happening is the home goal or the family's goal is often different from the educator's goal. Sometimes that's a disconnect in the educator fully understanding the child's skills. I'm a big believer in if a child is not yet independent with homework, why are we doing it? So I'm not really sure what the point of homework is if it's not independent. So if you're having to sit with your child to get homework done, and I've been there with my child, there is an age range where you, like with a neurodivergent child who is really needing to push through some of the curriculum in middle school, yes, you're going to have to sit with that child. But if it's, you know... If it's an elementary, if there's homework in elementary, and there's a lot of debate about this, right? But if a child is not getting things done during the school day, and then they have more to do, but they actually need to be playing after school, I just, there's so many, every kid is different, and there's so many pros and cons. (laughs) 
you can totally ruffle feathers here because yeah. if somebody's <laughs> coming home with work and they're stressed about it and it's causing ripple effects into family stress, like that's the problem. So we got to talk yes, about that. Absolutely. 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 I, I am always like, don't get me started on homework. Like if homework is causing the stress at home, like we just need to like nix that. That's not the number one thing we need to start with. Now we can build up to that where we are doing projects at home or we are making sure that yeah. the learning is happening or whatever, but that's not where we start. We don't start at right. let's get all the work caught up, right? That's just going to stress out the kid even more. So this has been such a great conversation. Um, is there something that you speak to parents, to um, to teachers that you just want to make sure is like heard for listeners who are listening to this? Because they're, you know, as you know, most of the listeners are parents of kids who have either neurodivergent, highly sensitive, strong-willed, you know, just a little more challenging kid than your average bear. Um, and then we also have teachers and therapists, counselors who listen as well. Is there something you just feel like Man, if they could only take away one thing, if they could only hear one thing, this is my message. My one message for educators and for parents is to stay curious about what you're seeing right in front of you. When your child is distressed or a student is distressed, something is too hard or too much or too chaotic, and it's out of sync with the skills that they have either in that moment or in general. And that's what's so tricky because these skills can ebb and flow depending on how tired a kid is or if they're constipated or if they're stressed, like it could be anything. And so many of our stressors can be internal. So we have to believe our kids. We have to believe them when they are stressed and telling us that and align with them. Mm -hmm. And it's us and them against the problem and not us against them. And so we have to get curious mm -hmm. and try to figure out what's going on. And that's why I do my work with professional development with teachers. And when I talk to teachers, I want all the teachers. I don't want just the special education teachers. I want all of the teachers because th you're already teaching all of these children. Um, and the thing I know at the end of the day is that if you can get curious and figure out what works with an executive functioning issue or anxiety or whatever kind of behavior is presenting, you can do the same strategies with a neurotypical child. It's just going to work faster. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. all of these things that I, I teach teachers and, and work with them on are relevant for everyone. And I, I know I feel that way too with parents when, um, you know, yes, every kid is individual, but if we just stay curious and try to figure out what's going on with each individual child, we will be able to protect that relationship, which is the container that all the growth is going to happen. Mm, I love that. And if someone was wanting to take a first step and right now they see that their kid is struggling or they're the teacher and they see that, you know, the parent is is struggling to be able, you know, maybe the parent is complaining or the parent is saying, I don't understand. I don't know how to help my kid. Um, so both sides, right? But what would you say is the first step to helping the kid the most and helping everyone start working together? So the first step is to do some self-study and some reading and some learning of making sure you understand the skill weaknesses of your child. This could be through working with a psychologist or the school psychologist and having an evaluation. This could be just collaborating with your child's teacher. Your teacher, your child's teacher will be able to tell you this is the stuff that they can do independently. And this is the stuff I'm noticing is frustrating or I get resistance on because wherever we get resistance on, there's something that's too hard. So starting to figure out what all those things are 
and learning more about executive functioning, learning more about emotional regulation, which is all part of executive functioning, and and then starting to talk about those things as a child having a hard time versus giving you a hard time will help reframe how you think about it. And this is this is different from how we were raised. We were raised with just being told to do the thing. And if we didn't do it, we weren't trying hard enough. Our neurodivergent mm-hmm. kids are trying harder than anyone I have ever met. And so mm-hmm. there are, that's why they get burned out. And there are all kinds of things that can negatively impact them from a mental health standpoint if we don't keep showing up and problem solving for them. So we want to show kids that we're trying to figure out what's hard for them. We're listening to them. We are aligning with them, especially as they get older. We're helping them understand themselves and self-advocate. And then once you're understanding your child, helping them understand themselves so that they can in turn start to speak up for themselves in, you know, late elementary, middle school when they need something and learn how to say something um, Mm -hmm. if something's too hard for them or needs to be presented in a different way. Um, And, you know, I think all of those things are just, it's, it's a moving target and an evolution and something you learn today, you know, your, your kid will grow and change and then you'll have to learn a new thing. It's, you know, similar to all parenting, just extra. Speaking of learning and educating Mm -hmm. yourself, I know this is what you do and you have got a beautiful um, social, you've got your own podcast, you've got um, all kinds of great resources and free classes. Um, Where would you like people to go and check you out and learn more about how to support their child or a teacher who's trying to support uh, their classroom? Yeah. So you can find all of my resources at learnwithdremily.com. If you love to read and that's how you take in information, I have a Substack at learnwithdremily.substack.com. And that's how my newsletter goes out every week. And then um, I do have a podcast as well as courses. So um, I have uh, self-study courses for teachers called the Neurodiverse Classroom and also a parenting course for parents who are raising neurodivergent kids called Parenting on Your Own Path. And all of that is on the website. So thank you for asking. I love that. And we will link all of that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. So you can just go to calmthechaospodcast.com and find a link to the show notes there and all of Emily's amazing resources. Emily, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like I could talk to you all day long. And I know that there's probably going to be people who have questions. And so go check out Emily. um, Go check her out on Instagram and, and just send her a message and say, I heard you on Calm the Chaos Parenting podcast. And I've got this question because uh, I know she'll be able to help yep. you out. So Emily, thank yep. you. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. This has been so fun. So I've loved this conversation. Again, go check out Emily's work. And I would love if you loved this conversation and it has helped you kind of reframe the way you're seeing your child's struggles or your student struggles. I'd love if you just send me a message also and say, I listened to this, the podcast episode with Dr. Emily and it was super helpful. And this was my biggest takeaway. That would be awesome because I love connecting and hearing from each and every one of you guys. And with that in mind, I want to remind you that you are exactly the parent or the educator that your child needs and your child is not broken. They are exactly the child they're designed to be and you're not alone. So know that you have got this and I will talk to you on the next week's episode. Oh, and before I go, one quick note for all of you who are enjoying the podcast. My new book is officially live 
and I know you're going to love it. So just a quick reminder, you can go get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com. And if you do, you'll get some cool bonuses as well. Once again, get your copy at calmthechaosbook.com and I'll see you next week.